Hey everyone, it's time for the With a Bullet podcast. His name is Matthew Golden. My name is not. Uh, it's Todd Golden. So, Matt, what's up? What's going on up in the Great White North? Um, let's see. Well, I was not elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I put all of my money into GameStop. Um, that kind of yeah. covers all the current events there. I um, also was not elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I really don't know what the hell's going on with this GameStop thing. I don't really understand it, so because I'm dumb. Um, well, basically, I mean, it's people had read it, just decided to pour money into GameStop for whatever reason. So it's kind of like the time where <laughs> me and a bunch of my high school friends went to Pizza Hut, and we decided to give the waitress a really good tip, and we went way overboard. We ended up giving her like a $50 tip because we just kept throwing money in because we thought it was fun. <laughs> okay I've, we did do that. yeah so it's kind of the same principle sort of but um also i mean also because like a hedge fund was backing up gamestop and they're expecting the price to drop um they're losing a ton of money because of yeah, it i read for that. some reason so they're trying to host <laughs> the hedge fund which is yeah which is honorable but Apart from that, I like there's other people like we need to stop trading on on GameStop, like the Massachusetts governor. I'm like, um, why? Like, I don't yeah, care. yeah, I don't care. So I own, pretty much I really yeah. own very little in the way of anything like that anyway. So I, I don't pay much attention to the stock market apart from how it affects our overall lives. And this strikes me as like a bunch of people pranking for like a week. Pretty much. I mean, that's what I expect is going to happen with this. I mean, it's going to probably go back to normal like next week or whatever. GameStop is annoying anyway. I went into one. I did buy um, Pro Evolution Soccer 19 in there so I could play this kick-ass World Cup option file. And mm-hmm. They've like dropped. It's like if you want a game, now they have it like on a list. They don't display it anymore. So it's like you walk in there and it's like it seems like it's empty. Even though huh. it's not actually. That's weird. Yeah, but I don't go there very often. So the only right. thing happening here is it snowed today. Oh, okay. And yes. I'm having a bunch of electrical work done to my house tomorrow. Huh. So hmm. new light fixtures, new chandelier, new switches, new outlets in certain places. We are actually, we're getting rid of all of it. We're going off the grid. We're going to. Okay. Have a big campfire in the middle of our house. So <laughs> right. it's going to be like one of the old Ir- Iroquois uh, Indian, whatever they're called. Uh, uh, wigwam? I don't think they're called wigwams. The longhouses. Okay. 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 I think they call them longhouses. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, this week's chart was my choice. And uh, we're doing the R&B chart from January 30th, 1982. And um, this isn't really a period of music we've touched on very much. We've done charts from the early 80s. Uh, but I think this chart demonstrated that um, even though the early 80s top 40 charts are pretty diverse, there's a lot of stuff on them. Um, there's a lot of stuff on this I'd never heard before. And uh, some of it was pretty decent, to be honest. Some of it was, you know derivative but um it's an interesting point in r&b history 
kind of underrated, I think, after listening to some of it. But um, because we are definitely out of the disco age because there was a big backlash to disco at this point. And we're getting into the electro uh, post-disco phase. But it wasn't I, it's definitely in that, but not quite all the way there yet, I think, is maybe a sort of roundabout way of explaining it. So what did you think? I, I enjoyed this one, actually. I thought this was a pretty good pick. And there was like a lot of stuff that was like the early electro stuff, but also stuff that was like basically like the remnants of disco on it, too, which was pretty interesting. And um, most of the songs on this, or at least on my side of the list, were pretty decent. It was hard to come up with skips, actually. Yeah, so. there's also quite a bit of R&B yacht rock. So like the R&B wing of Yacht Rock, uh, certainly on my side of the chart. But, um, you know, it's an interesting part of kind of R&B history that I don't know that it's as well um, celebrated as 70s funk, even though a lot of this is certainly influenced by it. Um, A lot of these bands really didn't have a very long short life or shelf life, short life. so it's it's interesting, but I, I agree with you. I, I thought a lot of this stuff was pretty good. I mean, there are very few duds. So um, and, and the duds I had were songs I knew for the most part. So um, some of the deep cuts were uh, interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I invented something for this. You, you are aware of it as well, but the listeners are not um, because I'm a dork and come up with dorky shit. <laughs> I created the bumpin' scale, which is how bumpin' is the song on a scale from one to ten. So we'll be we'll be referencing the bumpin' scale um, throughout this uh, version of the podcast because I'm all about yeah. bumpin'. I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, very well known for my getting you know skills on the dance floor and how uninhibited I am when it comes to dancing. I mean, I'm pretty <laughs> well known for that. Like, I love there's nothing I love more than to get out on the dance floor and show everybody my rhythm. Because yeah. Yeah. I, I, I am oozing like it's coming out of my pores that I need <laughs> to go out there and just jam. So, right. Um, everything I just said is actually the opposite of real life in real life. So just so you know, <laughs> but that doesn't mean I can't have a bump and scale. So I do, but we'll let, yeah. let, let you get started with, uh, whatever you have bumping and it's, uh, and number 40, Want to Be With You by Earth, Wind, and Fire. This is late period Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, definitely sounds more 70s than 80s, though. But instead of being like a straight-up disco jam, it's kind of like an R&B, yacht rock type of thing. It's light, smooth, mellow. But at the same time, it's kind of generic, too. It's like a replacement-level um, Earth, Wind, and Fire single. Yeah. Um, I mean... If I had to put this on the bumpin' scale, it'd probably be a one because it's not very bumpin'. Okay. <laughs> but um, this did tie for a Grammy, though. Um, a rare tie for a Grammy. It um, tied with um, Let It Whip by the Daz Band um, for Best R&B Performance by a duo, duo or group um, at the Grammys. But... Let It Whip is obviously much better than this one and more bumping. So. It is. Let It Whip is pretty bumping. Yeah, yeah. How come Earth, Wind, and Fire left water out of their title? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, well, t- 
technically, I mean, that is like the three like elements or whatever. I I, I forget exactly where those three elements come from, but um, the elements were earth, wind, and fire, and apparently, like water is part of one of those. <laughs> it's I don't know exactly how to explain it, but yeah. What if they like wanted to get all um, sex sexual with their band uh, title, <clears throat> and they went earth, wind, fire, and and water, and they meant water like in the sense of like bodily fluids. Uh, that, that, that'd be kind of gross. I, I'm being nice. I'm being censored here instead of actually saying the actual words. <laughs> okay. <laughs> earth, earth, wind, fire, and I'm uh, going to leave it alone. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but number 39 for you, we have um, Gail Adams with Love Fever. Um, this has good bass, good bass synths. Um, Past that, it's basically a disco song updated to not sound too much like disco because we're in the 1981-82 period. And like I mentioned, the disco backlash was very much a real thing. And the R&B community was trying to come to grips with that because really the disco backlash only happened in North America. That that didn't happen in Europe. There never was a disco backlash in Europe, at least not uh-huh. the degree there was here. So the R&B acts that were kind of living large with you know, being able to be hit makers on both sides of the ocean, were really in a in a in a spot because you know their style that had brought them to prominence was all of a sudden passe. So in many ways, it's a lot like the hair metal bands that we talked about um, in the early '90s, who had the same uh, problem of transition. Most of it became electro funk, which is basically what this is. So. Um, oh, on the bump and scale, this gets a seven. I should have mentioned that. Um, oh, okay, okay. This was produced by Willie Lester, but sadly not Willie and Lester, which would have been uh, <laughs> cool. Um, Adam, yeah. Adam's bio says she went into house music later on in her career, but provides absolutely no basis for it. So I'm just going to believe it because it seems believable. So <laughs> yeah, but Gail Adams is one of those artists that kind of obscure, um, not well known these days, but. Um, but she got in the top 40 of the R&B chart, R&B chart, so good for her. Okay, yep. Yeah, now, now you know. The more you know. Yes. <laughs> Next up for you, number 38, is Stage Fright by Chic. Uh, this is my first skip. I've done Chic before and kind of wanted to talk about other people. Is this a cover, of the, is this a cover of the band's Stage Fright? No, no, no. It, it would have been funny if they did do that. <laughs> that would have been uh, very funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, 37 for you is Quincy Jones with 100 Ways. Well, the first thing you think of with this song isn't necessarily Quincy Jones. It's James Ingram, who is sort of Quincy's vocal muse in the early 80s. And he sings this song, uh, sings it well. Uh, good job by James Ingram. He's kind of got the right balance between smooth and and rugged in his voice uh, on this song, which is a ballad. Um, it's so identified with Ingram, who, uh, who who died relatively recently, within the last year or so, um, that many people credit him with the song. But it was actually on Quincy Jones's The Dude album. Uh, <laughs> and the album cover for this is really bizarre. So um, it's very 80s, but also in a way kind of very 70s. Um, it, it's, it's a... It's a drawing, basically, or an artistic, I guess it's a. It's not a painting, but it's an illustration. 
Um, and it has a big chin guy who looks like he merged from the land of Dairy Queen. Uh, <laughs> and he's walking okay. around on what appears to be like a African-American, you know, like a natural haircut. So think of somebody's head. And so this figure is walking around on top of it. So, but the head is almost uh, put out there like a planet. So it almost looks like it's galactic, but it's somebody's head. And so you got this big chin guy uh, walking around on it, kind of sort of strutting a little bit. And he's surrounded by all these very 80s squiggly colored lines, like real, real, um, you know, um, basic colors, like like red, blue, yellow, like not, you know, very contrasty. And I have to ask, I mean, is the guy an alien? Is he head lice? Is he an alien lice? I don't really know, but... Um, but it's an interesting thing to look at, which is probably, you know, we were still in the age of album covers that were creative. So that was probably what Quincy was going for. Um, But on the bump and scale, this is a ballad, so it only gets a two, but I should have had a smooth scale for this because if there was, uh, it would get like an eight, but this this was a big hit. This was a crossover hit. It was on the top. uh, It was in the top 40 as well. So relatively well-known song. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this this one isn't too bad. Yeah, it's all right. So, yeah, it's not Smackwater Jack, which is <laughs> right. Quincy yeah, Quincy Jones's seventies uh, albums, which is actually pretty good. So yeah, nor is it the theme to um, um, shit. What's the show with uh, Ironside? He he did Sanford and Son too. He did do Sanford and Son. The Ironside yeah. theme is awesome. And the show is also awesome for totally different reasons because it's absolutely ridiculous. Right, yeah. I'm going to go solve crimes in my wheelchair. I love it. And they get come up with... I, I haven't seen it in a while. I think they took it off the channel. I used to watch it like on Sunday nights. And it was just hilarious how, like, how much they had to stretch it to get Raymond Burr to solve crimes in his wheelchair. And he's an asshole in the show, too. He's like... He's like that kind of gritty police chief who just rips on everybody else and they all defer to him because he's in a wheelchair. It's like, you're a dick. Okay. Uh, you're a dick. You have a cool TV theme, but you're a dick, Ironside. There's one yeah, there's one episode yeah. where they had ghosts and it was funny as hell. It's must see TV. <laughs> right. Anyway, I've gone I've strayed away from the early eighties uh funk, but we'll get back to the yeah, number, yeah. number thirty six is something about you by Angela Bofill. Let's see, Bofill was for the Bronx. Um she was discovered by Dave Grusin of the graduate soundtrack fame. And um she was initially like a light R and B um jazz torch singer. Um but she shifted on this album, um actually which was also named something about you uh, to kind of a more mainstream pop post-disco artist. And that was at the behest of her um, label president, Clive Davis. Um, I don't know if she wanted to do that at all, but that's what happened here. Um, It's more or less a straight up disco song with slight electro elements in it. There's like the synth whip cracks in the chorus. Oh yeah, you gotta have that. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's kind of a transitional track, I guess. Um, it was produced by Narada Michael Walden, who um, later went on to produce Whitney Houston in the late 80s. And 
Um, this song was written by Allie Willis, who wrote Boogie Wonderland and September for Earth, Wind, and Fire. So kind of two big um, pop R&B forces coming together on this one. And um, Bofill's voice kind of reminds me of Tina Marie's. Um, they sound pretty similar. And, like, I listened to some of her, like, Torch Singer stuff before this, and she didn't sound like that on that. So maybe she was just, like, putting out that voice for this or whatever. But who knows? But anyway, on the bumping scale, I'd give this one a six. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're we're about, get, about to take the bumping scale. Uh, well, no, we're not going to take it up. Maybe in a few songs, but... This next, the next uh, okay. one is interesting. I will say that. Okay, okay. Number 35 is Cano, or Kano, with Can't Hold Back Your Lovin'. Uh, it's never a good sign when you have to go to the Wikipedia disambiguation page to find information on an artist. That's usually a bad <laughs> thing for the artist. But Kano, I'm going to say Kano. It could be Kano. could be who knows. Um they are a whopper, and I give to you Luciano Nenzati, Stefano Pulga, and Matteo Bonsanto, straight out of Milan, Italy, the center of R&B <laughs> funk. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is a band that's fallen into, they were a big Euro disco group, late 70s, early 80s. Um, probably best known to modern audiences for uh, being sampled on, for their song, I'm Ready being sampled on whoop there it is by a tag team so oh nice yeah and i mean speaking of tag team how dare geico besmirch the musical legacy of tag team by making them ice cream minstrel artists on a commercial it's not cool yeah yeah i know they were (laughs) the biggest uh hip-hop group there was for like 10 minutes so (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how they can do that. To, I don't know how they could do tag team like that. That's not right. But right. They should have done it to 95 South instead. They should have done it to uh, Paris or maybe uh, uh, who was the guy who did, I'm trying to think, um, uh, Funk Dat. Who did Funk Dat? Oh, uh, Sadat, I think. Yeah, they should have had him in that. They should do a <laughs> okay. Geico commercial with Funk Dat. I could actually see that. Yeah, 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 I can see that too. High insurance prices? Man, fuck that! (laughs) Right. Anyway, this song on the bumping scale is just a five because it's a little bit behind the times. However, I'm Ready, which I listen to, is bombastic. That gets a nine on the bumping scale. So go check that out by uh, Cano because that's uh, legit. Legit, you're okay. That's good shit. So, right. So yeah. much love to Cano straight out of Italy, the center of funk. <laughs> right. Yeah. Next up for you, number 34 is Blue Jeans by Chocolate Milk. Chocolate Milk were a funk soul group from New Orleans. Um, they were kind of in the same mode as the Ohio Players or um, early Cool in the Gang, um, horn driven funk. They um, worked as Alan Toussaint's house band for a couple of years in the mid 70s um, before they broke up. Uh, their own and while they were with Toussaint um, Wings were recording um, their Venus and Mars album at his studio um, so one of the guys from Chocolate Milk their percussionist um, Kenneth Afro Williams ended up playing at Rock Show oh. so 
Um, they ended up on a Wings album. But anyway, this was um, inspired by the designer jeans craze of the late 70s, early 80s. And by the fact that the guys in Chocolate Milk really like seeing girls wearing them. It's like the funk equivalent of kind of way tw- Twitty's tight fitting jeans or um, Dr. Hook's um, Baby Makes Her Blue Jeans Talk. All three of those songs came out roughly at the same time. So something was in the air <laughs> about it. Um, but the guys from Chocolate Milk chant out their favorite brands during the song. Um, Jordash, Bonjour, Sassoon, Chardon, uh, Gitano, Calvin Klein, Sergio Valente, um, Gloria Vanderbilt all get mentioned in it. And they even have time to shout out the nine designer brands like Levi's, Wrangler, and Lee. Um, I'm almost 100% sure that this inspired the designer jeans bit in Beck's um, High Five Rock the Cast Hills. Um, kind of the kind of a similar type thing going on it. Yeah. Um, but um, this also sent me into a deep dive into the designer jeans craze because I could barely remember any of it because I was like four when this was happening. Um, I found out that Larry Bird appeared in a Chardon ad. Yep, which is legit. Um, yep. Um, Phil Esposito and Lou Pinella shield for Sassoon. And well, that did, Jordan... You didn't do that and, right. It's ooh la la, Sasson. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I messed it up a little bit. But, and that Jordash at one point owned a blimp, um, which crashed on the anniversary of the Hindenburg disaster at the same airfield. Cool. So, yeah. I think they did that on purpose. <laughs> just for fun. Could be, could be. But... Um, in, in terms of the bumping scale, I'd say that this is probably about a seven on the bumping scale. Okay. It's, yeah, yeah. I think you're dissing the legacy of David Dundas with jeans on. That was like three years before this or something. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That, I mean, but you're was... right. But you're right. I, I, I remember the designer jeans thing, even though I was, I was rocking the most designer jeans of all at that point. I'm sure I was wearing tough skins or something. So. yeah yeah. they were the they were the they were the bomb they were the gold standard of uh of all all kids slacks so yes yes they have a great animals you know we would have been living in texas when this came out and i honestly don't remember what i wore to school back in those days because that was were the years where i didn't have to wear a school uniform so i I don't even remember it was probably just whatever we had i'm sure i still wore corduroys once in a while yeah, probably. probably. I, I mean, I, I don't remember what you're wearing either. Why not? <laughs> That's what you're here for. I don't know. So, yeah. But anyway, at number 33, we have Prince with Controversy. I don't know why, but I've never been able to get into controversy. And I, I can't, after listening to it again for the podcast, I got to say the problem is with me, not Prince. I think it's my problem. I can't, I can't even figure out why I don't like this song because it's, it's got all the elements of a good song. I, I think the only thing that bugs me about it, because I give it an eight on the bumping scale. I mean, so it's bumping. Yeah. I, I think it's the way Prince's vocals are understated. I think that's what bugs me about it. But um, but Prince did that on a lot of songs. So it's not like this is the only song he did that. So, again, my problem, not Prince's problem. I know a lot of people like controversy. So 
Um, so blame me for um, not getting it. But it's somewhat famous because one of the it famously ends with the lines, uh, people call me rude. I wish we were all nude. I wish there was no black and white. I wish there were no rules. I think we should take that to heart. I think next time we should do the podcast nude and with no rules. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm up for that. All right. <laughs> cool. So yeah, yeah. Do the entire hot 100 like for a week and then we could do 30 long distance dedications all while not wearing clothes. It would be amazing. Yes. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> so I'm not afraid to get naked. I don't care. <laughs> right. Me. Right. So Anyway, we'll stay with the rules this week, though. Number 32 is I Want to Hold Your Hand by Lakeside. Lakeside were originally from Dayton, Ohio. Um, they've been around since the early 70s. They were a merger of a couple um, local Dayton R&B bands. They were initially called Ohio Lakeside Express, um, but the record company made them shorten that to Lakeside, uh, presumably to avoid confusion with the Ohio players, who are also from Dayton. And also probably to avoid confusion with the Ohio Express. Right. <laughs> but they're best known for Fantastic Voyage, which was a hit about a year before this and was sampled by Coolio in the 90s. But this one is a Beatles cover. And when I saw the title on the chart, I thought, oh, God, I wonder if this is a Beatles cover. Well, it is. And they recast it as an R&B slow jam. Um, right. there's, there had been R&B covers of this song before, um, the Supremes and Al Green both did it, but they kind of stayed with the Beatles tempo from the original. Um, nobody tried to slow it down before, but it works really well. I mean, um, Mark Wood, um, from Lakeside has like the baritone vo voice and Otis Stokes with, um, the falsetto voice kind of swap verses in this. And that works out really well. Well, and when they get to the "I can't hide" part, they kind of stretch it out a little bit. Um, it's it's great. I mean, it's a really great cover. And this did actually have a video. It's pretty nondescript. They're just playing live and they're wearing tuxes. Um, but it does give us our YouTube comment of the week. Um, Al says, "This is like when Marvin Gaye did the national anthem." Lakeside put this song took this song and put their foot all up in this song and made it theirs. Even the Beatles got to sit back and say, damn. <laughs> yeah, but they did. Yes. But on the bumping scale, I'd have to give this one a two just because it's a ballad, but on the smooth scale, it's probably like a nine. All right. So I have yeah. two things about Lakeside. First of all, regarding the bumping scale, Fantastic Voyage would definitely get a 10 on the bump and skill. So use that as your frame of reference if you're familiar with Fantastic Voyage, because that song is a jam. Um, and secondly, what fucking lake is there in Dayton that they would call themselves Lakeside? I've been to Dayton a million times, and there ain't, there ain't any lakes there. Yeah, I, was I, I was actually looked at a Dayton map to see if there was a lake, and all I could find was like a little like reservoir like collect pond near yeah. downtown. I always thought Lakeside were from Cleveland for some reason. I don't know why I thought that, but um yeah, there ain't any lakes in Dayton. There's not much of much of anything in Dayton, to be honest. Pretty much. There's yeah. Skyline Chili. They do have that. Yeah. Yeah. Well I mean like that entire corner of Ohio has that though. Well, yes, but they do have them. So 
get off my back. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but number 31 for you is Ray Goodman and Brown with How Can Love So Right Be So Wrong? This is my first skip. It's lame, but I will give points for the early 70s style spoken word at the beginning of the song, which is in bass voice, no less. This song sounds like it was from 1970, not 1982. So um, it's a skip. Plus their band name sounds like a law, law firm. Okay, okay. So next for you, number 30 is You're the One for Me by D Train. For the first 30 so- seconds of this song, I was thinking that this one was going to be a skip. It seemed like a standard run of the mill R&B ballad, but then it went and got electro crazy on me. So I had to do this one. <laughs> D Train was both a person and a band. Um, James D-Train Williams was a lead singer, and the other guy in the group was um, Hubert Eves, who was a um, former keyboardist of um, Entume. Um, he left before they put out Juicy Fruit, so um, he wasn't part of that. But um, this was their debut single. Um, technically, this song isn't electro. It's considered either boogie or post-disco, which are all pretty much the same thing when you come right down to it. Um, Very synth-heavy, lots of hand claps, um, whip-crack sound effects, um, very soulful baritone vocals from D-Train. It was a really big hit in the clubs, which isn't really surprising if you've ever heard this. It seems tailor-made for that setting. Um, And it was number one on the dance chart for three weeks. And I I found a clip from Soul Train of this from this time period um d-train don't appear in the clip by themselves but um that just means that there's more screen time for the dancers which is always a good thing and it's very early 80s lots of headbands leg warmers um dudes that are kind of dressed like prince and don cornelius introduces this one as a groove that makes you want to move really smooth which kind of sums it up on the bump and scale i'd give this a nine. Oh, all right that's so high praise. Yeah. Yep. That leads us up to your long distance dedication. What slop are you throwing onto the grill today? Let's see. Well, there are 10 other tracks on this chart. So technically I could have gone with any of those, but I'm going to the hot 100. All right. Um, week instead. Um, at number 22, we have Lindsay Buckingham with trouble. Okay. Um, this was Lindsay's first solo single, which came off of his Law and Order album, which is a really weird album. Um, to give you an idea of what it's like, um, he basically kept going in the direction of some of his weirder contributions from the Tusk album. Um, almost all of it he played by himself. And um, this is probably the most conventional song on there, and it's still somewhat odd. It has like a hazy, ethereal quality that quality to it sounds closer to something that Stevie Nicks would have written for Fleetwood Mac instead of Lindsay. I mean, that's not a knock on it or anything. I mean, this is on par with some of the best Mac stuff. And um, there's a pretty memorable video for this one. (laughs) Um, It's filmed in like a hazy all white background, which was pretty common for the uh, videos from this time period. And Lindsay's in the center and he has a line of drummers all dressed in black to his left and a line of guitarists um, dressed in white to his right. And all the guitarists and drummers were either friends of Lindsay or had some sort of link to Fleetwood Mac. 
Um, Mick Fleetwood's there. Um, Fleetwood Mac's manager, guitar Mac, uh, guitar tech, and record promoter are all there. Dwight Twilley's there. Uh, Walter Egan's there. Um, a guy from Lindsay's very first band is in there. And his two predecessors from Fleetwood Mac, Bob Weston and Bob Welsh, are in there. And I already did the YouTube comment of the week, but some guy joked that all these guys were his Coke dealers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> be the other way which around. is also possible. But it, the video also had like an ethereal quality that kind of matched up really well with the song. And um, Lindsay just looks like completely wrecked in it too. Um, but I have to admit that I was introduced to this song in kind of an unusual way. It was featured in the background of a scene of the HBO stable, Just One of the Guys. And to me, that's the most memorable thing about that movie. Um, <laughs> okay. not, not the scene where she flashes her tits, not anything that like William Zabka did in it, um, this song. But anyway, I'd like to dedicate this one to HBO Staples and Lindsay Buckingham's Coke dealers. Okay. So. <laughs> a two, a three, a four. That's what he does. Yeah. That's a great song. <laughs> I love that song. That's my favorite Lindsey Buckingham solos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's uh, legit. Did he record any of it while lying on his back with a mic above his head? Like he did on. Fuss? No, he, I, I don't think he did that for this one. No. Oh, must have needed more cocaine then. <laughs> right yeah exactly <clears throat> no that's that's a really good song i enjoy that one as well so yep hit the album cover is weird he looks like he's like in like like he went to menards and got some like cement uh colored paint like the stuff you use for like cracks in your foundation or something and he like yeah painted himself with it and he's got like this like it's almost like a jerry curl it's not a jerry curl but his his curly hair is almost like way too processed or something i mean it looks like the scene from coming to america like if he leaned against a couch it would like leave a mark <laughs> probably yeah i mean it's it's a strange look but it was 1981. yeah yeah it is it was yeah. 1981 and cocaine was uh, a hell of a drug as a wise man once said yeah yeah exactly but uh, 29 for you is Vernon Birch with Do It To Be. This is the shit. Um, this is electro-funk straight from the core of the earth, which is not actually where electro-funk comes from, in case you were uh, confused. Uh, but, it sounded, right. but it sounds cool to say that. Uh, Birch recorded, among other labels, he recorded for Chocolate City Records, which was affiliated, as you may guess, with uh, P-Funk. So that uh, automatically is... a uh, is puts him in good stead in the uh, funk department. Um, the vocals aren't very good, but it doesn't really matter because this is just a jam and it's a legit one at that. I rated a nine on the bumping scale. This was good stuff by Vernon. Burr. Nice. Nice. Good uh, post-disco funk, which P-Funk was really, you know, it's kind of easy to forget, I guess, that P-Funk still had a little bit of, uh, currency in the early 80s still i mean they were still uh -huh. sort of even though the band itself fell into all kinds of financial troubles and they sort of broke up and there was like a splinter version of funkadelic and all of that they still though were at the forefront of the sound um probably well into about 82 or 83 so this is in that vein so 
uh, kudos to Vernon Birch because kudos is a very funky way to, you know, praise <laughs> funk. Yeah, yeah. So next up for you, 28, Do It Roger by Roger. I, I have to mention that the last time that I saw Todd in person, he gave me a copy of Roger's I Want to Be Your Man. As a Oh, yeah, that's right. I did do that, didn't I? I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, this is a P-Funk style jam here. Um, what the people want Roger to do in this song is the talk box, which is his trademark. And when the talk box comes in at around like the three minute mark in this song, uh, the background vocals shift from do it, do it, Roger, do it, to he's doing it, keep doing it, keep on doing it. And then um, when there's more talk box after that, it changed to... Um, my goodness, he's doing it. Let him do it. Um, he's giving up what they want. I mean, he's a good guy. He's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> before I checked out a before I checked out a live clip of this, I also didn't realize that he played guitar on this. And the b- guitar is pretty great on this, so he's also doing it there. And in that clip, he's wearing a sailor suit, and he's like walking onto the stage from the middle of the crowd. And he's carrying a guitar that's shaped like an AK-47. And he just kind of like shreds for a couple minutes. Um, it's it's pretty great. I, I, I have to give it up for Roger. He could do it. Yeah, Roger's so. fucking awesome. I love Roger. Right. Yeah. And on the bump and scale, I give this one an eight. Yeah. So. Which is actually probably pretty weak for Roger, to be honest. Because he's, he's also, his best stuff would be in the 10 mode as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yep. But 27 for you is Bill Summers and Summers Heat with Jam the Box. Holy shit. There are a lot of people in this band. Think of <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire with like even more vocalists. Like literally almost everybody in the band is a vocalist. So you got a full <laughs> horn section. I'm talking like seven or eight people. You've got several percussionists. You've got, uh, you know, keyboard uh synthesizer guitar conga drums uh it's it's like it's like it's basically like p-funk it's like they threw like it's like you you you, they show up in the census there's so many people in this band um that i did find a clip of this from soul train and it's and it's great because um you have like i said a full horn section they're all african-american except for one balding white guy uh, with long hair, he kind of looks like, I don't know if you remember Kenny from Breaking Bad, one of the white supremacist uh, dudes yeah, towards the yeah, end of the yeah. show, had really long hair. So think of him about 20 years older with with balding gray hair, but the same long hair in the back. And that's what this dude looked. His name was Jeff Lewis. I actually They actually introduced him because it's Soul Train because they do that. Um, and he was very into emoting his vocals. And his horn playing. I mean, he's like way overdoing it. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> Bill Summers himself, who played, it looked like he played sax on Soul Train, but he was better known as a conga player, um, started out with Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters in the early to mid 70s. So played with Herbie Hancock a lot. And he's been an in demand, uh, you know, kind of funk slash jazz mu- musician ever since. He's played on a lot of uh, different stuff. Uh, but this was his own band. And he and Summer said this himself on Soul Train about uh, Summer's Heat. He said, quote, 
the most important thing about this group is that it's not only a band for entertainment, it's an educational institution at the same time. All the band members are very heavy in their own particular area. All of them very versatile. And we have our own in-house kind of family trip where we publish the music, we administer the group, we book the group, we write, we master, we do the whole trip. So Summer's Heat had their shit together. On the bumping scale, um, I'll give it a seven. It was our Okay. Um, but very transitional again, kind of like probably very similar to what Earth, Wind and Fire were doing at the time, but with like more people in the band. Right. And a, yeah. and a white guy who uh, was funny. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And deserves to be checked out. So go find that on uh, YouTube everywhere. Next up for you, <laughs> number 26 is, uh, is it Fungi Mama? Uh, uh, Fungi Mama. Fungi Mama Bebop a Funka Disca Calypso. I screwed that up. By Tom Brown. <laughs> Um, Tom Brown started out as a jazz trumpeter, but he kind of moved towards R&B and disco in the late 70s. Um, he's best known for the song Funkin' for Jamaica, New York, um, which is his homage to his neighborhood in Queens. Um, Mariah, cover, or Mariah Carey covered it. I mean, it's been sampled a bunch of times. It's kind of a minor funk classic, I guess. Um, this one's a little bit better, though. It's almost an instrumental. It's kind of a Mardi Gras carnival type party song. Um, Lots of percussion, horns, hand claps, um, electro weirdness. There's even a rooster crowing in there. And it's all the lyrics are just a repeated chant of, oh yeah, oh yeah, Fuji Mama, Bop-bop-a-lop, oh yeah, Mama. It's really catchy. And when you hear it, you just want to get up and dance and go nuts. Um, it's pretty great, and it's also pretty bumping. I'd give it a, a seven on the bumping scale. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, um, I forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm stupid. <laughs> All right. Uh, but twenty five for you is slave with wait for me. Nah, this is a skip. I had to skip some stuff, so this got skipped. Okay, okay. Next up for you, number 24, is Toot and Toot and Toot by Curtis Mayfield. This one is a skip. It's, I mean, the 80s weren't really a good fit for Curtis Mayfield, I guess. This one was kind of underwhelming, so I'm skipping it. This was before, yeah, this was well before his accident. Yeah, he he was still. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. But 23 for you is Aura with Make Up Your Mind. This is also a skip. However, I will say sound the shirtless male on album cover Klaxon because it has that. <laughs> okay, okay. Just referencing a podcast from whenever I paid tribute to shirtless album covers. So, <laughs> or, or, Well, the, the Lindsey Buckingham one that you mentioned is also a shirtless yeah, album right. cover. So we're still in that period. So uh, Aura is actually a man in a female group. So it's a shirtless man embracing uh female. So it even has that going for it. Oh, okay. Okay. Next up for you, another band that definitely embraced the shirtless album. <laughs> Number 22 is numbers by Kraftwerk. This one's pretty simple. It's just a very hard electro track with someone counting in German, English, Italian, French, Japanese, and Russian with a vocoder. And it's very danceable. It caught on on the clubs, caught on with the break dancers, and eventually caught the attention of Africa Bombada, 
um, who mixed it together with another Kraftwerk song, Trans Europe Express, and created the classic hip-hop track, Planet Rock. And most of what became Planet Rock came from this song. Um, that's Planet Rock's, like, four parts this, and then, like, one part Trans Europe Express. Um, when Africa Bobada says, um, rock, rock, planet rock, don't stop in the chorus, it's the exact cadence of either Ralph or Florian saying, um, eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, sex, sieben, acht. Um, but anyway, this is a really great song. Um, this was their only appearance on the R&B chart, which I guess isn't really too surprising. And actually, when I was looking at their chart history, um, I did notice that they made it to the adult contemporary charts with Autobahn, um, which I thought was kind of funny. That is because that doesn't seem like an adult contemporary song. But on the bumpin' scale, I would give this one a 10. Because this is very bumpin'. Vo- so. Vocoders help the bumpin' scale. There's no question about it. I wonder if oh, I wonder if Kraftwerk yeah. is the only... Unless you count Heatwave. But see, they were Americans who were stationed in Germany. I wonder if Kraftwerk is the only true German group to make the R&B chart ever. Could be. I mean, maybe Silver Connection possibly uh, but they were a studio creation they weren't even a real band i mean that was a producer uh doing silver connection so i don't even know what nationality they count at right what, what about boney m I, I don't know if boney m ever made the uh r&b chart in america and i don't know boney m i suppose counts as german but they're again like they're a multinational group though so yeah that's true Kraftwerk were yeah. definitely hardcore German, like painfully so. So, yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, don't, uh, Heatwave. Uh, well, I suppose Millie Vanilli probably did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they were German, kind of. So yeah. <laughs> I just answered my own question. Yay! <laughs> but twenty-one for you is Smokey Robinson with "Tell Me Tomorrow" Part One. Um. Yeah, we. You have to listen to Part One to know what happens in parts the other parts. So. <laughs> but by now, Smokey Robinson was very much associated with a quiet storm genre that he basically partly invented in the mid 70s. And by the quiet storm standard, this is up tempo, but it's still much closer to smooth than it is to funky. Um, Robinson's vocals are on point per usual. He kind of sounds in the smoky scale. He's kind of in the more love version of his voice, I guess. Um but if this were by, I mean, the problem is, is that it's Smokey Robinson. So, you know, it gets, you know, gets it in the door, basically, like you listen to it. But if this were by anybody else, it would be really mediocre paint by numbers, kind of early 80s, I guess, R&B or even top 40. So it's not that remarkable. I will give it points, though, for some very legit 80s sax uh, in the middle of it in place of where, where a guitar solo would normally be. I mean, on the bumping scale, I guess I'd give it a four. Okay. Because it is a little bit up-tempo, but, I mean, it's Smokey Robinson, and by this point, Smokey's, Smokey's kind of like, you know, um, he's, just, he's, he's just smooth. He's not funky at this stage of his career. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, probably gave up on funk, like, mid-'70s, I'd guess, and, oh, like, least. with a quiet storm stuff started yeah he made a conscious decision to kind of just stick with the slow jam so 
you know, right. fine. He did him well, and it basically carved out another 15 years for him in his career. So hard to knock it, but right. So, but that leads me to my long distance dedication. Yeah, we're gonna go 180 degrees different from the R&B chart. Um, we're gonna go to the album chart. Uh, as you mentioned, okay. there are 10 songs underneath the top 40 in the R&B chart, but I didn't really have anything that tripped my trigger. So I went straight to the album chart at number 60, Mob Rules by Black Sabbath. So okay. I don't pick this album because I like it. I've never even heard it up until I did this. Um, but because the album art on Mob Rules scared the shit out of me when I was uh, when, when it was out at this time, I guess I would have been 10 um at the time we like i mentioned earlier we were living in texas and back in the day um you know music stores it was still record stores basically at that point but they would do these very elaborate storefront displays uh provided to them by the record companies um advertising albums i mean if you've ever watched like fast times at ridgemont high i think you could see like an example like somebody has a pat benatar thing in that movie i think Anyway, they're big, giant displays, basically in the windows of mall stores or actual, you know, storefront record stores that advertised albums. So at that time, we lived in Texas, and we would do a lot of our shopping at the Golden Triangle Mall in Denton, Texas, uh, north of Dallas. So we were in there shopping. We're just kind of wandering around, and, and, and we walk past the, the record store, and I come upon the Black Sabbath Mob Rules display that the record store in there had. I'd never at that point in my life, I'd never even heard of Black Sabbath. And because it's not like mom and dad were throwing on Supernaut or Sweet Beef <laughs> at home or anything. Like yeah. that. So I was perplexed by all the doom laden imagery on this album cover. So if you've never seen it, the Mob Rules album cover has these four faceless ghouls that look like they look like blobs, kind of, I guess is the best way to put it. They look like blobs of uh, like. I don't know, brown sugar or like pre-mixed flour or something like, like cookie batter. They look like cookie batter ghouls is what they look like. <laughs> okay. And they don't have faces. And that's what threw me off. There's just a big black void where their face would be. Um, and they're lording over what looks like some sort of weird ass, like Ed Gein inspired abattoir. Um, it's like a, it's like, I don't know what it is. It's like they're in a, back alley from hell too and it's just looks like it's made out of human skin or something like that it's fucked up looking and the album you know black sabbath is on the wall of this uh uh nightmarish back alley and in in like graffiti style and it's black sabbath mob rules and so these are supposedly the mob rules uh people that they're talking about and they look like fucking ghouls and they're scary as fuck and um or at least they were to me when i was 10 because I remember this album cover for a long time because I just didn't get it. I was like, what the fuck? You know, I, I, I was just terrified. So and, um, you know, I don't think it was until many years later that I even figured out it was Black Sabbath at all. So um, <laughs> but because, um, you know, looking back on it, the album cover, now, it cracks me up now that I was freaked out by it. But I did listen to it a little bit. And this is dio era sabbath by the way when ronnie james dio was briefly in the band when ozzy basically drugged his way out of the band um and as black sabbath goes it's not bad actually i did find huh. it um you know 
I guarantee the intro to the title track of Mob Rules would also have sent me into night terrors because, you know, Black Sabbath were into all this kind of almost druggy-ish, um, weird instrumental flourishes in their songs, and this definitely fits the bill. There's a song called Sign of the Southern Cross, which would have fit right in on Metallica's Ride the Lightning. It's not thrash necessarily, but it's in it's close. It's like proto thrash, basically. It's decent early 80s heavy metal, but I'm still not buying it because it still scares the fuck out of me. So <laughs> I dedicate this to silly childhood fears. And also it gets a zero on the bumping scale. But that's <laughs> but, but it, it would get a eight on the metal scale. So, uh, OK, OK. But uh, so, yeah. Do, are you familiar with this album cover? I am, yeah. I, I mean, I've never heard it, but I do remember the album cover. Yeah, they look like uh, cookie batter monsters is what they look like. <laughs> it's fucking yeah. freaky. Right. Anyway, next up for you, number 20, is I Found That Man of Mine, The Jones Girls. Uh, this is a skip. It's basically um, a leftover disco song. The comma, uh, the comma in the song title screwed me up because it really is. That pause I did was not dramatic. It, it is, I found that man, comma, of mine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't get so. it. <laughs> right. Uh, 19 for you is Confunction with Bad Lady. Nah, it's a skip. Nothing. Okay. Which leads us to number 18, a familiar one for many. Number 18 is Apache by the Sugar Hill Gang. Todd, jump on it. Jump on it. Jump on dun, it. Dun, 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 dun. Yes. Um, this is the Rap Pioneers take on an instrumental classic. Um, Apache was a big hit on both sides of the Atlantic in 1960. Um, Jorgen Ingman went to number two here. Um, the Shadows went to number one over in the UK. This version's based on the incredible Bongo Bands version from 1973, um, which is one of the most sampled songs ever. It's been sampled to the point where it's actually been referred to as hip hop's national anthem. Um, this was this version came out before samplers, um, so it, it was basically just recreated for this song by um, Sugar Hill Records house band, and it's close enough to incredible Bongo Bands version where you can hardly even tell that um, it was redone. But since Sugar Hill were a rap group, um, obviously they didn't leave it as an instrumental. Um, the verses are somewhat problematic by today's standards. Uh, they're doubling down on the whole cowboys and Indians thing. Um, teepees, squaws, smoke signals. There's a war chant at the end of the chorus. Um, they even reference the We Call It Maze Marzola ad. Um, in the one clip that I could find of them performing this, uh, Big Bang H Hank and Wonder Mike are wearing like feathered headdresses and um, carrying tomahawks in front of a teepee. Um, you probably couldn't get away with that in 2021. Um, but this version has endured in pop culture thanks to the Fresh Prince. Um, Will, Will Smith and Alfonso Ribeiro danced along to this in a talent show in one of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air episodes. Um, it's what pretty much everyone my age or younger associates this song with. It's kind of dopey, but it's memorable. Um, but this version has also been sampled a lot, too. Um, Sir Mix kind of copied the Jump On It part for his song Jump On It, but he switched it to 
cities instead of um, Kimosabi or Tonto. Um, Master P sampled it for Make Them Say Uh. Uh, Missy Elliott um, almost covered it for We Run This, and um, KRS-One also um, sampled this. But on the bump scale, I give this one a six. All I know is that they're just drafting off the village people's heat. Pretty much, yeah. With the, with the whole <laughs> cowboy and Indian thing. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and and I this mean, has become a sugar Sugar Hill were pretty much a novelty group too. Yeah, and this has become so. a jock jam over the years as well. So there's that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but. Um, at number 17, we have Luther Vandross with Don't You Know That. Vandross was remarkably popular, um, although almost entirely based on the R&B chart um, in, the, in his early days. And this was only his second or third single. Uh, he didn't really start consistently scoring top 40 hits until the latter part of the 80s. So he's at the beginning of the line here after being a session uh, background singer for many years uh, in the 70s. He's all right. He's got a very smooth voice, um, but he re- rarely deviated from that. I don't like if you had to tell me, I mean, it is all his voice. I don't know what Luther Vandross's like brand is beyond that, but that's, I guess, enough because people really loved him on the bump and scale. This is a two. But I mean, to be fair, Vandross wasn't really a funkster, so you can't really expect a whole lot of bumping. So um, but yeah. I've 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 never been into Luther Vandross. I never quite got him, but um, but I was again. Uh, obviously, a lot of people did. So, right, yeah. I mean, he's okay. I mean, I've never really got into him either. But I mean, he's good at what he does. So. We are haters, anyway. <laughs> number sixteen for you is "Walking in the Sunshine" by Central Line. Uh, this is the sole representative for the British Isles on my side of the chart. Um, they're from London. Um, they came up with the name Central Line because they saw them as the central line between funk and soul. Um, this one's closer to the funk side of the line. Um, there's actually two versions of this song. Um, the one that's charting here, um, which is the original version, um, is now considered like the last known version of the song. Um, the better known second version or the one that's better known today was a um, 12 inch remix by house pioneer Larry Levin. And his version kind of tones down the uh, funk elements a little bit. And he brings like the very peppy sounding keyboards in this way up in the mix. It's very breezy sounding. Um, it sounds vaguely like what Daft Punk were trying to do with get lucky about 30 years after this. Um, both versions of this are great, though. Um, on a bumpin' scale, I'd probably give both versions a six. Um, they are pretty bumpin', but it is kind of smooth at the same time. So, Cool. Nothing wrong with smooth bumpin'. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but 15 for you is Grover Washington Jr. with Be Mine Tonight. Well, to me, Grover Washington Jr. is like the perfect representative of late 70s, early 80s smooth. I mean, you know, he was he played uh, saxophone and he would basically mold his sound around that, usually with guest vocalists. Um, You know, 
he famously duoed with Bill Withers and just the two of us. That is the template of Grover Washington Jr. Um, pretty much a lot of his other stuff, if it wasn't instrumental, uh, was going to be a lot like that. And this is no different. Uh, Grady Tate handles the vocals on this. And I'll be honest, it's not one of Grover's best that I've heard. Um, on the bump and scale, it gets a three, but it only rises even to that because it just suddenly goes all up tempo about halfway through the song. And, you know, the kind of bumping that this song is designed for isn't the kind of bumping we're talking about. So, um, so yeah, but it's, it's proto or very, or it's replacement level Grover Washington Jr. Oh, okay. okay. This isn't a tribute to Dr. J or anything cool like that. Like he did on one of his previous albums to this. Oh, oh really? I, I didn't know about that. Yeah. He's got an instrumental, um, like dedication to Dr. J like from it's from an, it's from the, I forget which album it's on, but it's like an album or two ahead of this one. Huh? Because Dr. J was not only cool, but he was smooth. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still think Dr. J is the coolest NBA player ever. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. He's up there. Yeah. No, he is at the top up there. Okay. All right. But he was like classy, but also a badass. That, that's true. Yeah. Yep. So, anyway, number 14 for you is Mirror Mirror by Diana Ross. This one's a skip. Um, I've done Diana Ross and the Supremes a lot. So um wanted to talk about other people. So I'm skipping this one. Well, you might be in trouble coming up then. Possibly. Yes. <laughs> um, but 13 for you is Cool in the Gang with Take My Heart. You can have it if you want it. Everything that Matt just said about Diana Ross, I say about Cool and the Gang. I've had them enough, so this is a skip for me as well. Okay. Which leads us to number 12, Why Do Fools Fall in Love by huh, Diana Ross. Um, this is my last skip, and it's um, a Frankie Lyman cover. And yeah. not very, not a very good one either. No, so. it's, it's awful. But yeah, uh, you skip the same artist twice in the same countdown. Yeah, I know. I, th- I think that's the first time I've ever done that. I think I did it once, but um, so, yeah. So put that in the record book. (laughs) Right. Uh, But number 11 for you is LTD with Kicking Back. Well, a lot of bands live on after their best known member left, but I didn't expect LTD to to jump into that storied list. Uh, I'm thinking more along the lines of like the miracles and the impressions and uh, LTD is not up in their class, but you know, this is an example of, uh, of having a hit after their best-known singer left the band. Jeffrey Osborne was their uh, lead singer in their late 70s peak when they had uh, songs like Back in Love Again, which was a big hit um, on the top 40, as well as the R&B chart. Uh, But he left along with his brother, uh, I think the album before this. So LTD carried on, and they replaced Osborne with Andre Ray. And he sings on this funky jam. Doesn't sing very well, to be honest. It's kind of gravelly and doesn't sound like Jeffrey Osborne at all. Um, but again, this is another track where singing is really secondary to the jam. I'll give it a seven on the bumping scale. So L- LTD, okay. were, they were basically a disco band. They're trying to transition like everybody else. So it's all right. Right. Yeah. Next up for you, 10 cool part one by the time. This is essentially a Prince and the Revolution song. Um, Prince and Des Dickerson wrote and played on this one. Uh, Lisa sings background vocals, and 
Uh, Morris Day more or less sounds like he's imitating Prince on this. Um, it wouldn't have sounded out of place on either Dirty Mind or Controversy. Um, what makes this the time, though, is that the lyrics are kind of tailored towards Morris's over-the-top playboy personality or persona. Um, in the lyrics, he has a penthouse in Manhattan, um, two houses in Malibu, a caddy at Maserati, um, diamonds on his fingers and toes. Um, he's flying from Frisco to Rome in his re- Learjet. Um, he's cool. He's cooler than Santa Claus, baby. <laughs> but um, there was a video for this, which kind of surprised me. Um, in it, the time bust into a high school class. Um, they kicked the teacher out and kind of play for the kids. And apparently you're supposed to spell out cool or C-O-O-L with your hands while they sing it in the song. Or at least that's what the fake high school kids in the video do. Um, but um, one of the guys in the time at the time looked sort of like um, a reject from like the Blues Brothers or like basically was dressed up like Dan Aykroyd or um, John Belushi from the Blues Brothers, but um, looks like a fatter version of both of them. And he's a keyboardist for the time at this point. So uh, they have that going for him, but on the bumping scale, I'd probably give this one a six. That's not um, very good. That's not very good for the time. Yeah, I know. Like Jungle Love would probably be a ten. Yeah, but this okay. one's kind of underwhelming for bumping. <laughs> I hate it when it's underwhelming for bumping. Can't happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But number nine for you is Earth, Wind, and Fire um, with Let's Groove. Uh, this is one of Earth, Wind, and Fire's last big hits. Uh, it went to number three on the top 40, and it, uh, I believe it went to number one on the R&B chart. It's an iconic jam. Um, it's exactly what you'd expect from Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, you know, at this point, the band essentially said, fuck you to anybody who wanted to alter their disco sound. They just kind of tweaked it and just kind of basically kept it on, kept it keep it they they kept on keeping on is what i'm trying to say um so they made you know like a lot of songs in this chart they made just enough updates to make it commercially viable um there's some vocoder in this which keeps it in line with the electro funk of the time um but really let's groove isn't all that different from their 70s hits when you boil it right down which is fine i mean it's a good song um on the bump and scale i'm only giving it a seven but that's because Earth, Wind, and Fire always kind of traded more in smooth than they did funk. Like, they did smooth funk. So, you know, it's a jam. People love it. Um, But I'm not going to put it up there with, like, the true funk, uh, like, masters. So um, that's no disrespect to Earth, Wind, and Fire. It's a good song. But it does give us our Wikipedia fun fact of the week, though, sponsored by Hot Take Whiffs. Okay. (laughs) Quote, Whitney Pastoric of Entertainment Weekly declared that uh quote again i actually love this song especially the little computer voice in the background like pac-man has come to life to boogie just for me unquote <laughs> like, i never once thought of pac-man listening to let's groove just because it has a vocoder in it yeah me neither <laughs> this one is pac-man talk anyway pac-man doesn't talk right yeah exactly what the hell is yeah. she talking about other than in the cartoon that i didn't watch in the 80s <laughs> yeah i i never watched that one either i uh, and maybe pac-man serial talks i don't know 
<laughs> I doubt that. Nintendo. It's for breakfast. That has nothing to do with Pac. Yeah. That, that jumped in. Maybe she was thinking of Buckner and Garcia, possibly. I thought about Buckner and Garcia was on the top 40 um, or in the hot 100. I thought about, but I've already done that as a long distance dedication, I think. Or no, I had it on a chart. I don't think it was a dedication. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, no, that we've already plowed over that ground. So, right. Anyway, next up for you is number eight, That Girl by Stevie Wonder. Um, this one's about Marlo Thomas. Um, Stevie used to have someone describe That Girl reruns for him. <laughs> Actually, that isn't true. Speaking um, of hot take whiffs. Yeah, yeah, I know. Nice but, trip. <laughs> I I sort of had this one before because I had Stevie's original music aquarium on um, one of our albums episodes. And I have my notes from that episode, and I mentioned that this song um, fell into the bland, bland 1980s Stevie category. Yeah. And I, I, I still more or less agree with that. Um, it's okay, but it's very bland. Um, but this was a very big hit for him. Um, it was Billboard's number one R&B hit of 1982. Um, it spent nine weeks on the top of this chart, and went um, top five on the Hot 100, and it was also nominated for a Grammy for Best R&B Song, but it um, lost to George Benson's Turn Your Love Around. Um, on a bumping scale, I'd probably give this a two, and that's generous for that's, this one. Very generous, and I agree this is bland Stevie. It's not, not, not prime cut Stevie at all. Definitely not, yeah. I mean, there's hardly any like prime stevie stuff in the 80s i mean i mean he was at the point of his career he was still really really popular based on his 70s output and i wouldn't say he was necessarily in in artistic decline but he's moving in that direction so it's kind of a weird sort of transition period for stevie because you know it it wasn't it wasn't gonna let i mean he was still gonna have hits but none of it on the level of like his 70s stuff so right yeah exactly and this is like two years away from like don't drive drunk and like um, i just called to say i love you too so it was gonna get worse than this so but number seven for you is peebo bryson with let the feeling flow peebo bryson was born to record songs for disney soundtracks (laughs) Which he later did, but at this point, Disney was putting out stuff like Fox and the Hound, so he wasn't needed yet uh, to do ballads for Disney movies. Would have been funny if they did, though. I wish there was a Fox and the Hound ballad or something Wicked This Way Comes ballad. That'd be funny. Um, Which is what Disney was putting out in the early 80s. Um, Peebo's name is actually Peepo, which is French West Indian. He's from French West Indian via South Carolina. Uh, but people kept fucking up his name, so he just changed the spelling of it to Peebo. That's how he got to be Peebo Bryson. Bryson, And that is the most interesting thing about Peebo Bryson or his music. Um, <laughs> on the bumping scale, this gets a negative infinity, uh, though I do kind of like the horns on it. <laughs> okay, it's, okay. It's Peebo Bryson. I mean, he did ballads, like real syrupy. Like I said, he was born to put put out Disney songs, Disney soundtrack ballads. Yeah, specifically. he was he was born to sing about Fievel the Mouse. He was, <laughs> yeah, Fievel the Mouse, or a bunch of um, 
tea kettles and some Disney movie that I'm forgetting what it actually is or Beauty and the Beast I think you're thinking of yeah Beauty and the Beast I'm sure he was on the Aladdin soundtrack um, later to be replaced in the Disney um, uh, number five in the cleanup spot by Phil Collins so right I, I people like that shit I hate that shit I don't think it's very artistically good so take that as you will right yeah exactly (laughs) i don't like the movies either so that doesn't help like i can't stand those movies they just i haven't seen all of them but what i have seen just uh makes me want i've only seen a couple of like those 90s disney movies because i mean obviously i was like a teenager by the time those came out so i didn't like see them in the theater at all I'll tell people I've never seen The Lion King and they're like, oh my god, you've never seen The Lion King? I'm like, what in the fuck would I like about The Lion King? Exactly, exactly. I mean, seriously, how does that appeal to my sensibilities in one single way? Not at all. Right, yeah. yeah. I, I it might be you. good. I, I don't know, maybe it's good, but I just have, I know, what was the one that Robin Williams voiced where he played like a genie or whatever? That was, that that was a, Aladdin. Yeah, I never want to see that as long as I live. That's what's going to be playing in hell when I go to hell. So, (laughs) you know, I don't want any part of it. And Peebo Bryson is singing on a lot of it. So that tells you everything I need to, you need to know about Peebo Bryson. Right. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, segueing out of my uh, latent anger. Number six is If You Think You're Lonely by Bobby Womack. This is probably my favorite Bobby Womack song. And I was... I'm very surprised to find out that this one didn't cross over onto the pop charts because I definitely remember hearing this one on the radio from time to time. Um, but this one's a little bit different than most of the songs on my side of the list because it is basically just a straightforward soul ballad. Um, Bobby wasn't trying to go electro on this or anything. Um, there's a half-spoken, half-sung intro where uh, Bobby's kind of talking about how his woman's always complaining about how he's never at home and how um, her friends, boyfriends are always buying him stuff and she wants him to do the same, but um, he's basically dumping her for that. Um, You're getting Bobby Womack. Why are you complaining? Um, You screwed up girl. So (laughs) it's um, this is just a powerhouse performance. He puts everything into this one. If you think you're lonely now, (laughs) <laughs> all right didn't expect yeah the bobby Womack impression. yeah they caught yeah me off guard. but um there for whatever reason there are a lot of reaction videos to this song um like teenagers listening to bobby womack uh first time listening to bobby womack and so on and this gets universal acclaim acclaim from the reaction video people um uh, in one of the videos um Guy actually leaps out of his seat when Bobby gets to the very first. If you think you're lonely now, so but yeah, this is a great, great song. Um, Casey Haley from Jodeci did a very fateful cover of this in the '90s, which actually did make it onto the Hot 100. But on the bumpin' scale, um, since this is a ballad, it's not very bumpin'. It's like a four on the bumpin', but. On the smooth scale, it's like a nine or a ten for this one. Yeah. So, yeah. But this one's great. I mean, one of the crimes of the century is that the Across 110th Street soundtrack isn't on Spotify. That's a shame because that's a great soundtrack. Yeah. 
it's I mean, from what I've heard of not, it, yeah, yeah, it's not as good as Superfly. It's probably not as good as Shaft, but it's right there. Um, and Bobby's in, you know, does he? You know, he's he's doing his spoken word thing before songs and all that, and it's funky and it's uh, good. I really like Bobby Womack. He's cool. He is, yeah, yeah. Um, um, he wasn't very cool to Sam Cooke, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he worked with a ton of artists, though. I mean, he played on Exile on Main Street. He played on There's a Riot Going On by uh, Sly and the Family Stone. He was really diverse, too, which is, uh, you know, cool. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Great stuff. But um, number five for you is the Barquets with Hit and Run. God bless the Barquets, one of my favorite funk bands, and also one of the great stories in music generally. Um, the history of the Barquets is fascinating. The original Barquets, the ones who recorded Soul Finger, which is their best known uh, song, uh, instrumental from the 60s, uh, they were shattered by the Otis Redding plane crash when uh, four original members of the Barquets uh, died with Redding and, uh, and a few others, uh, frankly, or not too far, right outside your front door there. Yeah, it's like two them. blocks away from here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Up to that point, the Barquets were sort of being molded as an heir apparent to uh, Booker T and the MGs at Stax Records, and they'd already played on a lot of songs at that point. Um, and it could have been the end for them, but surviving Barquets members, uh, Ben Cauley and Ronnie Caldwell, decided to keep the music going, and they reformed them. They rebuilt the musical chops the Barquets always had, and they started recording with more Stax artists, probably most notably Isaac Hayes, as they were the backing band on uh, Hot Buttered Soul and the Shaft soundtrack, which is awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, those Barquets, those wah-wah guitars from Shaft, that's the Barquets, that's them playing. Um, but they also added one element that they never had uh, in the original iteration, and that was a vocalist. So enter Larry Dodson, one of the most flamboyant vocalists uh in all of funk he was a force of nature and he would wear just these insanely ridiculous uh 70s and 80s outfits that you know just kind of he was in that macho mode of uh you know funk i guess where he's showing off his body and all that i mean the barquets had an album cover they were in the shirtless album cover uh hall of fame with uh um shake your rump to the funk and all that but um in his Watt Stacks appearance, he basically wore a bunch of chains. Yeah. That's about all he yeah. wore at Watt Stacks. And he had a really distinct voice, too, and it was perfect for the sort of bottomless funk that the Barquets made, especially from the mid-'70s on. Once Stacks records fell apart in the mid-'70s, they just they decided to get away from sort of the grittier Southern R&B they had been doing, and they definitely segued full-on into 70s funk at that point. And it worked for them because they had their most successful period from the mid-70s through into the late 80s on the R&B chart. So Dodson is the singer behind Shake Your Rump to the Funk and Too Hot to Stop, which got a bit of a revival when Superbad came out, um, among many others. And they were fixtures, as I said, on the R&B charts until the late 80s. Dodson also sings in my favorite funk jam of all time, The Galactic Holy Ghost, which is eight minutes of funk perfection both in terms of vocals and the long instrumental section in the middle. Um, this song, Hit and Run, is pretty good, too, with the trademark below sea level bass that the Barquets were really good at. They just had great bottoms to their songs. I mean, there was such a good foundation to what they were doing. 
Um, I think it's because they had to record with stacks and they had to do a lot of that stuff on their early stuff. And so their musical training helped them when they become a funk band. But uh, the Barkays always did a good job of jamming. They kept it tight, even in their long songs. They rule, basically. And on the bumping scale, this gets a nine, as a lot of their songs do. So yeah. uh, they were legit. And they never really, other than um, Shake Your Rump to the Funk, they never really crossed over much into the top 40. But they were huge on the R&B charts. I mean, they were probably in funk universe, not too far behind P-Funk, really. Huh. Um in the late seventies and, and probably, and, and exceeded them in the early eighties. I mean, they were, they had currency, you know, into the break dancing period and all that. And, you know, we didn't see it on MTV or anything like that, but they were big. Yep. So, and Larry Dodson is just cool. I like Larry Dodson. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I remember him from like what you're mentioning on Watt Stacks where he was like wearing the chains. And I think, didn't he have like a white wig or something like that? No, that was their basis. Oh, okay, okay. Like a big white wig. Yeah. So, yep, I love the Barkays. They are cool. Yeah. But another cool guy next up, number four, You're My Latest, My Greatest Inspiration by Teddy Pendergrass. I I don't know if you realize this, but we've actually had two-fifths of the performers of um, One Shining Moment on the show. Teddy's ver- yeah, you're right. Teddy's version ran in the late '90s, and um, they replaced it with a Luther Vandross version, which has kind of run on and off for the past 20 years. So now you know. Why the hell did they replace Teddy Pendergrass with Luther Vandross? That's dumb. Yeah, I don't know why. I, I don't even, know why I, they did. That. I guess that never really occurred to me. Yeah, because Teddy Pendergrass is cooler than Luther Vandross. He is. He is. Yeah, <laughs> but. For whatever reason, um, CBS wanted Luther Vandross, though. So, but um, this is a typical Teddy Pendergrass slow jam. Um, slow jams were kind of his trademark as a solo artist. And like most of his songs, this one was written by Gamble and Huff. Um, their partnership was kind of winding down at this point. Um, they were still writing for most, writing most of the songs for like the people on Philly International like Teddy, but they hadn't had a Hot 100 hit in a couple of years, and um, their R&B hits were going to start to dry up shortly after this one. It was the end of the era, um, out with Philly Soul and with Electro. And this song was also kind of the end of an era for Teddy Pendergrass, because um, this was the last single he put out before his accident. Um a couple yeah. months after this, um, somebody cut the brake lines in his Rolls Royce, and he got in a wreck and was paralyzed from the waist down. But fortunately, he was able to continue his career after the accident and was still very successful on the R&B charts uh, well into the 90s. But uh, this song is pretty good. I mean, you can't really go wrong with Teddy Pendergrass, and um, all of his slow jams are pretty great. And Bumpin' scale, I mean, this one isn't very bumpin', um, so it'd probably be, like, one on a bumping scale and, like, ten on the smooth scale, I guess. Yeah. So. I th- the top of the chart isn't offering a lot of bumping. You know? Yeah, not really. We're more I mean, there is a more bumpin' one coming up for me, I guess. But... Yeah, I think you're right, but I think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not totally out of bumping, but, you know, we're starting to see the coalesce, the, the, the 
things coalescing into more of like a general taste type thing. All the like genre stuff is at the bottom of the chart as it typically is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's see. But number three for you, um, George Benson with Turn Your Love Around. I, you know, I really don't want to hear this song if I'm going to listen to George Benson. Um, I kind of fit this in the same mode as the Stevie Wonder kind of bland 80s stuff. I mean, it's fine. George Benson didn't reach the same heights as Stevie Wonder, obviously, but it's in that same kind of smoothie mode. Um, if I'm going to listen to Benson, I'm going to go listen to Breezin, which yeah. is one of the best smooth slash yacht rock slash instrumentals uh, there is. Benson remained a commercial force from the time of Breezin, which came out in 1976, uh, well into the early 80s. Quincy Jones was kind of his kingmaker in a sense because Benson recorded for his label and Quincy really supported him as a musician and as an artist. And he was a good guitar player. There's no doubt about that. Um, this song was one of his biggest. He went to number one on the R&B chart and number five on the top 40. And as you mentioned earlier, it won a Grammy. Um, but it was Benson's last top 10 hit on the, on the, uh, on the top 40 chart. I mean, on the bumping scale, it gets a two. This isn't really a song, you know, you don't really fit bumping with, you know, kind of adult contemporary, basically, music, which is what this is. But but the man can play guitar. Yeah. So credit where credit's due. Yeah. I mean, I, I prefer breezing to this one, too. I mean, this one, I mean, I've just heard it so much over the years that. Yeah. 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 That doesn't help. I actually heard it today when I was went, went to the grocery store. <laughs> yeah. So. I, yeah. It's. Yeah, it's a grocery store staple. So, yeah. Well, I didn't hear it in the grocery store. I heard it driving to. Oh, okay. But, okay. But yeah, I can. But it would be a grocery store staple because it's in, inoffensive and etc. Right. Anyway, next up for you, number two is "Call Me" by Sky. This is Sky with two Y's. Why? Why not? Uh, they're actually known as New York Sky in the UK because. There was another sky with two eyes over there for some reason. But anyway, these people were obviously from New York. They were on Sal Soul, which was pretty influential disco soul label. And they were led by the three Dunning sisters, um, Bonnie, Denise, and Dolores. Um, Denise takes the lead on this one. Um, it's an electro party jam. It kind of reminds me of on the Mary Jane Girls' My House, which um, came out about three years after this so it's possible that this one inspired rick james to write that one for them and sky actually opened up for rick james around this time period so he probably got to hear this one uh, quite a bit before he wrote that one i'm not saying that he stole it or anything but it's possible um but this one is about stealing your friend's boyfriend and it doesn't really beat around the bush on that in the song it's pretty in your face about that um, in the video for this, uh, which I was surprised that it had a video, um, it's more or less a literal interpretation of the song. Um, it takes place in what looks like a fern bar. <laughs> and um, Denise picks up the guy who's played by the guitarist for Sky. And the other woman is played by one of her sisters, um, which I'm assuming most people didn't know that they were sisters. But that adds like another layer onto this, I guess. Um, but anyway, I, I like this one. Um, on a bumping scale, I'd give it a seven. Um, it's been sampled a few times, too. Um, too short, 
um, two live crew and DMX also sample this one. So, but this one's okay. So I can't believe Rick James isn't on this chart. Yeah. I was, I was surprised by that too. Yeah. That's hard to believe. He was at the top of his game, at least popularity wise at this point. Yeah. I, I think I had one of like on the same episode that we did um, the Stevie wonder album. I think I also had like whatever his current album was for this time period on that one. So I, I do remember doing like one of his albums on one of the shows. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, as the podcast grinds to a halt, well, we're up to the yeah, end. yeah. We're at number one here, so here we go. Um, Holland Oats with "I Can't Go for That." No can do. What? White guys. <laughs> I mean. I'd say that it sounds like I'm being uh, offensive, but it was a big deal that a white artist uh, was on top of the R&B chart. That did not happen very often. Um, I'll get into that in a second, but I guess on the song itself, I mean, a strong argument can be made that this is Hall & Oates' best song. I mean, I don't know if I, if, I don't know if it's my favorite one. I love it. It's up there in the, near the top. Um, but if I'm arguing like in an academic sense, I mean, it's smooth as hell for one thing. It has this sort of ethereal feel to it because of the way the, the because of the keyboards in it. And yet it has a little bit of propulsion to it. It's not it doesn't completely get lost in all of that. So um, and as I mentioned, this song broke a lot of barriers for one on a, in a chart sense. It was the song that finally conquered Olivia Newton-John's physical, which had spent 10 weeks atop the top 40 at number one. This was the song that broke it uh, after many songs tried. Um, second for Hall and Oates, it was their first top 10 hit in the UK where, where they had not had as much success. And as I mentioned, this was really embraced by black radio. Um, it's one of the very few R and B songs to be, uh, the R and B number ones by a white artist, Daryl Hall, upon learning that he went number one on the R and B chart exclaimed, quote, I'm the head soul brother in the U S where to now. God. True. <laughs> Truth is, Hall & Oates had had been staples on the R&B chart before. Sarah Smile, Do What You Want, Be What You Want, or Be Who You Are were uh, top 40 R&B hits before this. Um, Though neither approached the top spot. They were down, you know, in the the 20s, basically. Both of them were. One on One would go on to be a top 10 R&B hit about a year after this. And then somehow Out of Touch and Method of Modern Love made the R&B top 40, though I really don't know why. Um... In typical Hall & Oates fashion, they claim this song is actually about the music industry, not a relationship. They say they used a relationship as a metaphor that people could relate to, to understand what they were talking about with the music industry. I don't know what the fuck they're talking about with the music industry. I think almost everybody assumed the metaphor was what the song was actually about. Um, but it is a great song, no matter what they're singing about. So kudos to head soul brother Daryl Hall and company for putting out a pretty iconic song. So, I mean, I, the only other white artist I can think of that had a big hit, at least in this period, another one bites the dust by yeah. Queen. Um, I don't know if it went to number one on the R&B chart, but it, it was a big hit on the R&B chart. So, um, you know, in the days before MTV and all that, sometimes it happened. Yeah. But, like I know uh, um, Elton John did it a couple times in the seventies and I, I, um, David Bowie was on Soul Train at once, so I'm assuming he 
made it onto the RB. He was. I don't know if any. I mean, the only song I can think of that would have been a hit by him would have been "Golden Years," probably. Yeah, and I think that's um, what, he what he performed on there. Yeah, he did. I I've actually watched that episode, and it's very awkward because David Bowie's. I mean, Bowie was in thin white Duke mode at that point too, so he's doing copious amounts of coke, and um, so he's like blasted out of his mind, and you know the, que- the questions on Soul Train were always awkward because. I mean, they're pe- real people's questions. They're not faked, you know, like they probably would be uh-huh. today. So they catch people off guard and all that. And he played more than um, Golden Years. I think he played something else, too. Might so, have been fame, but, possibly. Yeah, I could see fame making the R&B chart, yeah. too. I mean, there are, there are a few songs off of Station to Station and Young Americans that probably could have made it. I don't know if Young Americans made the R&B chart or not. It may, it may right. have. Yeah. But... So, anyway, he's not Hall and Oates, so uh, Hall and Oates was able to uh, do that and then maintain some success on the R and B chart. Yeah, so. yeah, this I rate this one like right up at the top of their songs too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hall and Oates was so popular; they may have made the metal chart at this point. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> It'd be funny if they did, but yeah, they did for Family Man. They made the metal chart for Family Man. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure they were on the Angel Contemporary chart, so they would have hit. Yeah, they probably didn't hit the country chart. I can't think of a song that would have crossed over country for Holland. No, I mean, around this time period, I mean, the lines between pop and country were kind of blurred. So it is possible that they did. But I mean, but what song would it? Yeah, I mean, they didn't have any. Yeah. Your Imagination, which is off the Private Eyes album that this is off of, also went on the R&B chart. But I don't know. I don't think it went very high. So I love that song. That's the lost Hall & Oates song that everybody forgets about. That's a great song. Yeah, yeah. So that does it for this week. What do you have for us next week? Um, Well, we're doing adult contemporary for the first time. Uh, Oh, uh, yeah. February 3rd, 1979. Um, it's not as yacht rocky as I expected it would be, but um, there's some of that on there. And um, to give it away a little bit, the number one song was written by Neil Young. So, yeah, is Music Box Dance Music Box Dancer on it? No, no, that's not on there. <laughs> oh, that's bullshit. <laughs> the number one song was written by Neil Young. Okay, yeah. So clearly, it's. Uh... Uh, rocking in the free world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh down by the river. That yeah, cool. yeah. It or um, God, it would have around that time period. Probably something off of Trans, possibly. <laughs> in nineteen early nineteen seventy nine, I think that's pre Trans. Yeah, yeah, you might be right about been. that. So. All right, well, we'll get our soft rock on next week and uh, get ready for that. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 ready to, I'm ready to get into my feelings. Yes, yeah. All right, well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, follow your own bump and scale. Don't let us determine how much you bump. <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> bump however you want. Right. All right. Yep. See, you see later. ya. 
Are you coming in or are you going to piss about all day? You're bloody finished. You know that, Jack. I'm bloody finished, you. 